Like I said, we are in the last uh, sermon of the series. We conclude the series uh, with uh, today. And it's been a really good series so far. I think it's been, uh, hopefully it's been helpful to you. If you haven't been here, don't worry. I'll, I'll give you a quick recap of where we've come uh, to today. Hopefully today we'll still have an impact for you. But um, we have spent some time talking primarily about this idea of what does it look like to follow. That's the name of the series, to follow Jesus. And it comes from the theme verse of the words that Jesus would often use with the disciples of what that looked like to come to him or to follow him. And so here's, uh, here's for example, Matthew 4.18. Uh, Jesus is walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, uh, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water because they, they were fishermen. They fish for a living. It says, Jesus called out to them and said, come, say the words out loud, the two words. Follow. Yeah, come follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. King James Version said, fishers of men. I mean, remember the old King James Version. Yeah, uh, the, uh, fishers of men. It sounded more classy. Uh, come show me and I'll show you how to fish for people, right? Like, I'm, I'm going to give you a purpose greater than what you are currently doing. And then they, then they left their nets. And once they followed them, and you see this consistently uh, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, as it describes what Jesus would call people to do. And as they came to you know, know Jesus, they would follow him. So we talked about this question. What does it look like to follow Jesus? There tends to be this idea that following Jesus today is a little bit harder than it used to be. It was harder today in our generation than it might have been for our grandparents' uh, generation or in the time and culture that they were in. And that, we don't really believe that's necessarily true, especially when you get down to the root of what does follow Jesus really look like and really mean because somehow we we kind of misinterpret it sometimes or misunderstand following Jesus as to just being being and doing the things a good Christian would do right so we've talked about lists and other things coming on and we what does it look like to be and to do uh, the good Christian things um, and it kind of gets us into this transactional relationship with Jesus and with God and that's not exactly what following him was supposed to look like and I love this. This was a quote that came up in my newsfeed this past week. I just loved it, and it really went along with where we've been the last couple of weeks. Uh, you can't behave, uh, we can't behave our way out of a relationship or into a relationship with God, and we can't misbehave our way out. Isn't that good? That we kind of summarized the last couple of weeks. You can't behave your way into a relationship with God, and you can't misbehave your way out. Now, over the course of the last couple of weeks, I have had several people come to me. I call them my natural rule followers. I, I know who you are, and Jesus loves you, okay? Um, they, you know, they, they, they appreciate the messages. They know the heart behind what we're saying. But at the same time, they're like, Matt, there's still rules. Like, there's still ideals and expectations. And, you know, even the first week, we talked about loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and, you know, loving our neighbors ourselves. These are, these are expectations. So last week, we said it this way, and I want to recap it. Um, Again, rules do not necessarily produce relationships. We know that, right? Especially when it comes to our relationship with God. But relationships always produce responsibilities. And we know that's true, okay? Whether you're parents to children, whether it's husband, wife, whether it's friendships, relationships, period, produce responsibilities in us. There's expectations that come with a relationship, right? And we, and we just want to begin to see those commands. We want to begin to see and read as we read scripture what it means to follow Jesus. We have the responsibility, right? The ability to respond now to him because of our life and following Jesus to be able to do the things 
he's called us to do. But we see them less as rules of engagement, less as kind of making him happy, less as gold stars, and more, or checklists, and, and really more of a, just a responsibility out of the relationship we have in following him. Now today, we've got to end the series with what I, we called behind the scenes, discipleship in real life, right? Real life. What does that mean? Well, in real life, I primarily am talking about struggles and hardships, right? That's what real life is. When somebody says it's getting real, you know, it usually means it's getting tough, right? Real life is struggles and hardships. And not, not everyone, but the majority of Christians that I kind of end up talking to find that these are the times in their life that it's, they feel like it is the hardest, if you will, to follow Christ. It, it is extremely difficult to follow him in these times. And I just, you know, kind of want to answer the question, well, why is that? Why do we struggle, right, to follow him in those hard times or in those hardships or in those struggles? And I think the majority of it comes from just what people bring into their faith. Again, a lot of the culture we live in, whether it's influence, outside influences from, you know, Eastern religions and philosophies, you know, like karma, you know, you put good out there and you get good return. Everybody who've heard that before, you know, <clears throat> put good out in the world, you'll receive good back. Like there's a lot of outside influences. Our culture sort of, sort of believes that we can navigate and manipulate and sort of plan our way, since we're masters of our own destiny, we can kind of plan our way to kind of not have near as many you know, struggles or hardships as other people tend to have. Everybody nod your head if you're with me. So there, there tends to be this common cultural idea, and the problem is we bring that into our faith with Christ and into our walk and into our relationship with Jesus, when that's not exactly the way Jesus described what following him would look like. As a matter of fact, um, we're going to go through, several, I just want you to know ahead of time, we're going through so much scripture today, okay? So just, if you want to take notes or, you know, mark down some of these references for yourself, we're going through, I mean, I, I could say it, but I don't know if you'd believe me, all right? So I want you to see it in the word of God and really see, especially what Jesus said in terms of what he was really setting us up to understand the expectations. What does it mean to follow him and why sometimes we, we struggle when we really shouldn't be struggling during those hardships and, and trials in terms of following and, and, and following Christ. So here's the first one. We're going to jump into Luke 9. This is just one example. We're going to go through several of the gospels of what Jesus said in terms of how things were going to look when we followed him. He said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, right, you, you, you want to follow me, uh, you must give up your own way, you must take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, just leave it here for a minute, if you would. Uh, you know, this already is a little bit hard for us to understand, because we don't necessarily understand the cross portion of this verse. We understand it in the context, right? Jesus took up his cross and went, for the, went to die for us. And, and you could just say death, but the reality was is that when Jesus said this, everybody he was talking to would have known exactly what this meant, okay? The Roman government, the, Ro the Roman uh, uh, army, they had sort of become masters of death by crucifixion, right? They had become masters at, at basically torturing and killing people by crucifixion. So when Jesus says to take, uh, take up your cross, it's really basically Jesus saying, you're not only going to die to yourself and sort of get out of your own way, but you're going to also embrace the worst thing imaginable. 
you're going to embrace the worst outcome that you currently know, which is crucifixion. You're going to embrace that and you're going to follow me. That's, again, that's hard. But if you don't read this verse correctly, then you can't read the next verse correctly. If you really don't see what he's saying, because he goes, look, you're going to follow me because if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And this begins the paradox of what Jesus would oftentimes say that kind of seemed like it was contrary to one another. But it's this idea of like, you have to imagine and at least take up the idea, embrace the, the outcome of the worst possible outcome for you. And if you try to bargain and manipulate your way around it, you're going to, you know, your life's already gone. But if you give up on that, if you give up on that idea and you surrender that for me, you get life. You, you, you get life. So my wife and I, my wife was up here, Tracy, who sings. She's beautiful and sings and wonderful and leads worship. And uh, my wife and I are very different personalities, okay? Um, I've probably shared this before. She is a natural, what she would call realist, all right? I say pessimist, right? But she is a natural realist, all right? And she sort of naturally sees how everything can go horribly wrong right away. Everybody with me? Is there anybody else in the room like that? I know there's more than just my wife. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's several of you, right? She sort of does it. I mean, I remember learning early on when I would, you know, go on trips. I went over to, flew over to Africa one time, and my wife's just trying to explain to me that, you know, before I left, she had pretty much played out every detail of how I was going to die horribly and not come back. <laughs> So that by the time I leave, you know, it's really not as emotional for her because, you know, she's already, you know, basically I'm already dead. So, you know, it's kind of like all good news if I make it back. And I didn't quite understand that because, again, I, we're different. I am an optimist, right? Like, I can't possibly say, I'm only going to Africa. What's the problem? You know, like, I can't possibly understand all the negative things that would be there. But so, I, so even if you're a natural pessimist or you're a natural person who sees, sort of embraces the worst possible outcome, that's only half the verse. The other half of the paradox is that if you give, if you embrace that fully, you actually get life. You actually get to live in the freedom and life that Christ is calling you to when you give up that. If you try to save it and manipulate it, it's going to go bad for you. And so I, I kind of, she, she termed me this, and I actually like the term, it's a fatal optimist, right? It's the tension of both. You need to be more of a fatal optimist, or, you know, call yourself whatever you want, a hope-filled pessimist. I don't care what you call yourself, right? Like, like you need to be able to, to, to hold both in both hands, because Jesus said that you need to give up your life and take the worst possible outcome into consideration when you follow me, but I'm promising you that if you give that up, you find life. Everybody with me? Like, this is what he, the picture that he paints. As a matter of fact, this goes directly into what he calls the disciples to. This is a recorded for us in Matthew. He's talking to his disciples. Look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So you, don't want to be shrewd, you want to be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. But he goes on to say, beware, you're going to be handed over to the courts. and You're going to be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You're going to stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and unbelievers about me. So this is speaking specifically to the disciples. But he's like, look, you're going to get, you know, kind of, you're going to go on trial and you're going to get beat up and you're going to get flogged and, and mistreated. But look at the positive side, right? Like you get to tell people about me. 
This is going to be your opportunity to get in front of kings and rulers and governments and authorities to talk to them about me. And then he foreshadows the early church, really the, the beginning of this movement of the way. He actually goes on to say that a brother's going to betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And all nations will hate you because you are my followers. He foreshadows what we know in terms of church history, what things were going to look like that there was actually going to be family division and betrayal. The parents were going to give over children, and children were going to turn in parents that were followers of the way to be persecuted and killed and martyred for their faith. And that all the nations were going to hate them because they belonged to him. Here's another way that John records it for us. John records Jesus saying that if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. It says, if the world loved you as one of its own, or sorry, the world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you're no longer part of the world. Another version says, you're set apart. I choose you to come out of the world, so it hates you for that. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is no greater than his master. Since they persecuted me, they're going naturally. They're going to persecute you. And if they listened to me, they would have listened to you. They will do all of this to you because of me, for they will have rejected the one who sent me. Jesus says, look, there's a time at which you're gonna, your life is going to look very much like the world, and it's going to be a part of the world, and, th and the world is going to accept you because it doesn't really see anything different. But you guys, we, we don't know much about this in the West, but you know, lots of Christians around the world really understand what it means that when they start to follow Jesus, they get set apart from the way the wor their world looks. And when they stand apart, and when they set themselves apart, they begin to be hated and mistreated and oppressed because they're followers of Christ. Again, we're, we're shielded from that. People might unfollow you on Facebook or, you know, one of your social media posts because you put something Christian up there, or said something about this or that, and somebody might treat you a little bit differently at work, but we just, we just don't really get what that verse really entails when he says, you know, guys, when, when you look just like the world, they don't care. But when you stand apart because you're mine, people will hate you. People will persecute you. People will treat you differently because you are set apart. Here's how John records Jesus saying this as well. He says, I've told you uh, all of this so you may have peace in me. He's kind of talked about the end of what's coming. And then he says, you know, here on earth, and read those three words for me. Here on earth, what? Yeah, you will have. Yeah, we're not excited about this verse, so that's okay. I'm going to let you read it again. You ready? Here on earth, what? Yeah, you will have many trials and sorrows. The NIV says you will have trouble. On this earth, you're going to have trouble. You will have trials and sorrows. But take heart because I've overcome the world. And again, this is part of the paradox. We refuse to kind of marry together in our walk and following of Jesus. We want to take some of these verses and simplify them out of context. You know, don't you worry about it. Jesus overcame the world. Woohoo! Right? We get to sidestep some of this, this, this struggle in life. And yet Jesus was pretty clear. Not that you might have trouble. Not that it's possible you'll have trouble. 
Not that if you screw up following me, you're definitely going to have trouble. Not if you don't do it right or be the right good Christian. No, he says, you live on earth. You're going to have trouble. <laughs> you're going to have trials and sorrows. That's what comes with living on earth comes with. But don't worry, because I've overcome the world. There's still going to be this optimism. There's still going to be this hope that comes even in spite of the trials and sorrows that we will experience. And guys, that, that experience can come from so many different ways. Some of the things that we struggle with, that we call hardships and trials and sorrow, comes in a lot of different packages. Okay, let me just give you one example. This is Jesus describing his relationship with the Father and the Father's relationship to us. Okay? At some point, he says, look, I'm the grapevine. This is the way he did Jesus give him a visual. But my father's the gardener. Okay? He's going to cut off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. That makes sense. But he's also going to prune the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, right now, like you've already been pruned and purified by the message that I'm giving you. Just by Jesus coming and delivering his message, you're already experiencing some pruning in your life. And listen, there's, there's a whole other set of verses, I can't even get into it, about discipline, about the fact that Jesus said, as a father loves his children, you know, you know the father's going to discipline. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, that, that the, he loves us, only a father who loves you would discipline you. So I can't even get into the discipline, but, but the reality is this, this is where maturity in your faith sort of has to come because every time you experience hardship and trouble, we're going to drift to one conclusion or another. Am I being pruned? Or do I immediately assume I'm being punished? Which one is it? Am I experiencing consequences of sin? Not even my sin. It could be somebody else's sin. Or am I being judged and condemned? Is what I'm experiencing because I live in a fallen and broken world? Or do I immediately assume I'm being abandoned by God? Does that make sense? We're going to drift to some of those things naturally, and it's because of how we view following God. It's because how we view this sort of transactional relationship that somehow we're going to sidestep and not deal with these things, but, but, but you're going to have to learn how to discern them. And sometimes you listen, sometimes you won't know. I'll give you one quick example. Put that list back up for me uh, real quick. I'll give you one quick example. Maybe you're having, you're going through fun, financial trouble, financial sorrow. Nod your head if you've ever gone through financial. Yeah, this is a common one for everybody, right? And sometimes, you know, you ever try to figure out sometimes when you're praying about that, like, God, I don't know why I'm going through this right now, right? Well, I don't know the answer to that either. Am I being disciplined and corrected because I've put too much trust and faith in worldly resources? Maybe God's disciplining and correcting me. Is he pruning me? Is he pruning me because I, I'm, he wants, to, he wants to, to even take apart that, what's, that is producing food, fruit so that we can produce even more fruit, so that we, there can be a heart of generosity to produce even more? Is it the consequences of bad decisions, bad investments, bad debt? Like, am I just experiencing the consequences of it? Or is it just because I'm in a fallen and broken world, man? Governments come and go. Inflation comes and go. Stocks are going to come and go. You know the answer to that? 
I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that for you, which is why we follow Jesus. Because for you, you're going to have to be able to work through you know, this tension in you that immediately assumes that just because I'm having this trouble, God must be angry with me. Just because I'm going through this hardship, I must have done something wrong. Just because I'm going through this, experiencing this trial, he's abandoned me. He's condemning me. No, it could be none of those things. Uh, one of the ladies this morning said, one of her pastors told her one time when she was complaining about something that her pastor said, you know, not, it's not always about you. And she said the same thing I do. And I said, that's not our first thought. Our first thought is that it's always about us. Right? When stuff's happening in our life, it's always about us. But it might not be. This is what we bring into this following of Jesus. That somehow we can escape, navigate, not have to deal with some of these things. And yet this is not at all what Jesus said was going to be the case. To be his followers. Now, let me give you one quick example, right? And, and just, Peter, you know, it's, it's going to be Peter. Peter's the one we can pick on, you know, Peter the disciple. He's, always, he's easy to pick on because he's just like us. And he responds just like we would have responded. As a matter of fact, he probably responds, we would have responded even differently than that. Here's right after the, the Lord's Supper, right after the, the, the Last Supper, sorry, he's, um, he's describing some things that are going to happen. And he tells Peter this. He says, Simon, Simon, this is Peter, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. He's talking about all the disciples. Satan has asked to sift you, going to tear you apart, going to put you through the ringer. That's what sifting does. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers strengthen your brothers. Now, you respond to this verse the same way I know Peter in his heart responded to this verse, is that, gee, Jesus, it's great that you're praying for me and all. I'd like to not be sifted, please. Everybody with me? Let's be honest. Our first response is, you know, Jesus, I appreciate the prayer. I'd rather not be sifted, please. Right? Like, if there's a way I can get through this without being sifted, I might try that route because I really don't want to be sifted. And yet Jesus is like, yeah, but I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you that, you that your faith won't fail. And I love this because Jesus even sets him up to understand the fact that he's not, not only is he going to be tried, but that Peter's going to lose, that he's going to fail at it, Right? He says, Peter, you're going to have to repent and come back to me, which is basically Jesus' way of saying, man, you're getting ready to go through a real hard time, and are you going to blow it as a Christian, right? Like, could you imagine him telling you that? Because again, our response would be, I would really like to not have to go through that. And what does Peter do? Peter goes, I'd die for you, Jesus. I'd die. You know, bring it on. Nothing's getting, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to die for you. Why? Because for Peter, the difficult, the trial for Peter wasn't going down in some blaze of glory, swinging a sword with a guard coming after Jesus to die a martyr. That wasn't, that wasn't what was going to really try him. It was going to be living for Jesus that was going to be the trial. It was going to be living for Jesus through what he watched Jesus go through 
And Jesus told him, man, even before dawn, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you even know me. This is, but the, guys, again, this is natural. Just hear me say it. This is a natural response. But because it's natural, we have to ask some questions. And this is an important one. Will you follow him when following him might cost you something? I think every believer should, should be asked this when they cross their line of faith. You know, I mean, I, I think it's great when people, you know, God turns their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I mean, the transformation of watching people come to faith is amazing. But I kind of wish I could insert this in every single one of the conversations. Listen, do you still want to make this decision? Even if it might cost you something? Because Jesus said that's possible. He told us we had to embrace the worst possible outcome and to give up our lives. And yet again, story after story after story, churches don't do it intentionally. Just hear me say it. It's not intentional, but we gravitate towards all the, all the idea that, that God's going to come through and it's going to be like, like all the Old Testament stories. For example, this is the author of Hebrews. Uh, in Hebrews 11, he writes called the Hall of Faith. He talks about the faith of, of a lot of the forefathers of the faith, you know, Abraham and Moses and Elijah. And, you know, he's talking about all these great things these people did. And then he, he gives a summary of some of the things that people got to experience in following God. He starts here, this is in Hebrews 11, he says, By faith, he's talking about all these people. They overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched flames of fire. They escaped death. By the edge of the sword, their weaknesses have turned to strength. They became strong in battle. They put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. And I mean, listen, listen, this is one of the reasons we love teaching Old Testament stories to kids. Like we love those VBS stories and those simple stories where God's the hero and he comes in and it's like you thought they were going to die, but God showed up, Right? And, and it's like, and it didn't, and nothing bad happened, and it didn't have to go that way. And we teach that to our kids, and we teach that to our teenagers, and we do. But the problem is, is that the writer of Hebrews is talking to adults. He's talking to the church and saying, hey, listen, this is the hall of faith. These are the people that did amazing things, that got to experience what was promised to them. But here in verse 35, he doesn't even take a breath. He says, hey, women receive their loved ones again back from the dead. But others were tortured, refusing to, follow, refusing to turn from God, even though it would set them free. They placed their hope in a better life after their resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed by the, with the sword. Some went on wearing skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people, this is the summary of all of them, the ones who received what were promised and the ones who didn't earn a good reputation because of their faith. But none of them received all that God had promised. None of them got to get experience all the glory that would be awaiting them one day. See, again, I, I, 
I just think for whatever reason, there's too many Christians that, that still believe for just a minute that if I do it right, if I, if I get it right, if, I, if I'm good, if I check all the boxes, right? If, if, I do, if I do everything he's called me to do, I get to stand in the putting armies to flight line, right? Not the I'm going to get sawed in half line. Everybody with me? So where does that leave us? It leaves us where we've leaves us where we are and where we've always been. We simply do not get to determine our outcome. We don't. We are not the ones who determine outcomes. When we believe that we are, we become bargainers with God. We begin to bargain with him that we can somehow get the outcome we want, but still be in relationship with him. And we start to try to bargain with him and manipulate and maneuver. And the reality is that following him, none of that is promised. Those those outcomes are, there's no guaranteed outcomes when following Jesus in in terms of how we want things to play out. You might be able to get, you might sign up and and you might get victory over your depression, but you might also suffer with a chronic illness for the rest of your life. You might might get to experience um, redemption and the fruit of a beautiful marriage, but you might experience outliving one of your children. Miracles are going to happen. But you know what? Cancer is going to happen. And, and you don't get the choice as to what you're going to experience. Because you might experience both. Do you ever think about the fact that everyone that Jesus healed and raised from the dead eventually got sick and died again? I'm going to say it one more time just to make sure everybody gets it. Okay. Everybody that Jesus healed and raised them from the dead, like miracles, all got sick and died. Did that take away anything from God's miracles? No. Not at all. It doesn't take anything away from what God has done and what God is doing. Here's how Paul said it to the church in in the church in Corinth. He said, we have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves, we are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes us clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Because we are pressed, not will be, not might be. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're never destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our lives and in our bodies.
a better question to ask is, will you follow him when you know following him will cost you something? Maybe it will cost you your health. Maybe it'll cost you a career. Maybe it'll cost you the financial security you so desperately want. Will you still choose to follow him if you knew in advance that it was going to cost you something? Here's the question that none of us dare even say out loud. We barely even whisper it. Is will I follow him if I know it's going to cost me everything? See, Paul, Paul, we don't know what it was. Paul talked about this thorn that he had in his side. He, he talked about, well, that's the way it was described. A thorn in his side, meaning that there was an ailment, something that he struggled with. We don't know if that was just physical, actually physical, uh, could have been mental illness, could have been PTSD from the, and, and physical from all the times he was try, almost killed and stoned and shipwrecked. and We, we don't know. We just know that Paul describes and it says, I had this problem, I had these hard, this hardship and, and suffering in a specific area. And, and he goes on to say this again in Corinthians. He said, three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. And I, I want you to hear, that's never a bad prayer. Okay? That's not a bad thing to come to God and beg him to intercede and, and, and remove that. But each time, God said, my grace is all you need. That's a no, by the way, on the, on the taking it away. That's his, that's his way of saying no. My grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. So then Paul said, so, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. He says it again. I take pleasure in my weaknesses in the insults, in the hardship, in the persecutions, and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. Why? For when I'm weak, I'm strong. There's that paradox again. Worst possible outcome? I get to find life. This is when you meet Christians and you meet other followers of Christ who just, just have a different way about them. You know, they're, they're, still, they're still battling a chronic illness, but they're still full of life. You know? Like, they're still going to walk through cancer, but they're going to experience miracles and be miracles for other people. There's people who are going to suffer with dreadful fear and anxiety but they're also going to experience victory and times of courage. There's people who are going to, they're going to experience the consequences of sin. Maybe it's their sin, maybe it's someone else's sin. But they're going to still find a way to live a joy-filled life because of Jesus. So it, it all boils down to this simple phrase. What are we guaranteed to get when we follow Jesus? And we get Jesus. We don't get the guaranteed outcome. We don't get to manipulate our own fate. 
We don't get to sidestep hardship and trial or trouble, as Jesus called it. What do we get when we follow Jesus? We get Jesus. That was Paul basically saying, I have to take pleasure in my weaknesses. Why? Because I get Jesus in my weaknesses. I have to take pleasure in these hardships. Why? Because I still get Jesus in all of this. Will you follow Jesus if all you're guaranteed is Jesus? Will that be enough for you? Again, don't, don't hear me say that that's not a battle because we have such an inf- the culture's influence on us is, is so strong. I mean, Paul says it this way to the Romans, and I'll end with this passage. Paul says it this way to the church in Rome. He says, can anything ever separate you from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves you or loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? And everything about our culture is going to say, yes, he doesn't love you. Why? Because even even if you think of yourself, you would never allow something like that to happen to the people you love. Right? Isn't that natural? You would never allow that to happen to someone that you love. And yet this paradox of following Jesus does not mean we get to sidestep those things. Paul says, does it mean that he doesn't love you when you experience this kind of trial and trouble that he told you you would experience? He says, no. Why? Because despite all of these things, you get Jesus. Despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. Despite all of that, I still get Jesus and he's enough. He goes on to say, as a a summary, hey, I'm convinced, this is Paul, I'm convinced nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life and angels and demons and fears about today and worries about tomorrow, the powers of hell can't do it, keep going, no power in the sky above, no earth below, nothing in all creation is ever going to be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is where, listen, if you ever wondered about it, like this is where Paul gets to that place in his life where they say things like, oh, Paul, you're going to be arrested and you're going to be thrown into jail forever. And Paul goes, to live is Christ, right? Great. I'm alive. Awesome. Jesus. And they said, uh, we're going to kill you. No, nah, we're going to, we're just going to kill you. Paul goes, to die is gain, right? Great, Jesus, right? Can you imagine the kind of freedom you live in your life with that kind of expectation, the worst possible outcome imaginable and hope for the life that he has for us? You can't get there. If any, any of your journey in following him has to do with the outcomes you think you are expected to have, or that you just want, or that you just desire, or that you try to manipulate and bargain with God to make sure those things happen, 
but you do get there. If you remember that what you get in following Jesus is you get Jesus. That's, I mean, that's what's guaranteed. And everything else comes by the overwhelming victory that's ours in him. I tell people sometimes, I, I'll share this quick story as we close, but <laughs> um, one, of the, one of our old uh, journey partners, um, his name is Larry Webb. He passed away a few years ago. Um, and, and Larry technically, he technically beat cancer twice. All right, he technically beat cancer twice, according to how medical professionals see it. You know, he, he beat uh, prostate cancer, I believe. And then the last one was this horrible leukemia that, um, you know, he had a 50-50 chance, uh, you know, in terms of, of going into remission from. And he did it. Like, I mean, through the treatment and the, all the stuff, I mean, he went into remission. He rung the bell, you know, and he goes through those cancer stuff, you know what I'm talking about? He rung the bell. He was experiencing uh, remission after, quote unquote, you know, kind of passing the, 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 you know, beating cancer again. Now, he still ended up dying. From those, from those diseases and because he didn't have an immune system after that. And he still ended up dying about a year later, but he technically beat cancer twice. And, you know, I'd meet with him, especially during his treatments, and we'd talk, and if he had energy, we'd talk, and he'd say, he'd say something along the lines where, you know, we'd talk about things were going, and if you knew Larry, you just knew, you, you, you just would see that smile come across him because he always was smiling about the joy he had in God. And he would tell me, he would say, Matt, no matter what, God is good, and God is faithful. And he would say it all the time. And I remember reading through his journal. Uh, Carol gave me his journal when we were preparing for his funeral, and we read reading through his journal, and I remember seeing a scrap piece of paper, like shoved in the journal. You know what I'm talking about? Like a little scrap piece of paper that he wrote those words on. No matter what, God is good, and God is faithful. And I always wondered, like, like, when did he write that down? Like, what's that scrap piece of paper from? Like a Burger King wrapper or something? You know what I'm saying? Like, where did he, where did he do that? Was it during his treatments? Well, like, was it during the time he, he knew he only had a 50-50 shot? Was it when he rang the bell? And I think Larry would tell you the same thing he'd tell me today. And he would say, it doesn't matter when I wrote it. Because it's true. Because no matter the outcome, no matter what ended for, for Larry. He's home with the Lord. He gets Jesus. And that's the same for us. And so my challenge today is not just to ask the question, like, will you follow? But like, for some of you, it's, it's, it's decision time, right? Like it's, you're either all in or you're all out. Like there is no halfway doing this. Like, none of us here at Journey want you to ride this religion train and try to figure out how to be and to do, do good Christian things but we want you to follow him. We want you to surrender that life, even if it's the worst possible outcome, so that you can find life in Jesus. Let's pray together. God, it's my prayer today that you would move in our hearts in such a way that we would stop bargaining with you to try to get the outcomes we desire or the ones we think we expect because we're your kids. And Jesus, would you just let us repent and come to a place that 
we are so zeroed in on not just that we can't sidestep hardships, struggles, and, and trials, God, but n- that wasn't even the point. The point of following you is that we get you. This beautiful relationship. That you did all the work to create. You came to us. You sacrificed it all and paid all so that we could follow you. God, I'm praying that as we challenge ourselves today with that question of following you even when we know it will cost us something, possibly everything, that we would leave emboldened and encouraged as we leave this place that we're all in, that that we get you and that's enough for us. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.